getting into the sermon this week. I'm kind of joking, but I was like, oh, we should do another summary on demons. <laughs> I, know, I know we've talked a lot about demons over the last couple of week, weeks, and uh, just thinking about that, you know, especially in, in the narrative of Mark 5, we're in the second half of Mark 5. Um, and, you know, specifically two weeks ago, I think, because last week we were at the, at the bay, um, we, uh, we talked about demons, uh, just kind of all the people who were begging Jesus. Just a little recap of the sermon from, from two, weeks ago, two weeks ago. Demons who begged Jesus. Um, the people begged Jesus to leave. And then the healed man begs Jesus as well, too, with, with the people and with the healed man. We talked about discipleship. And then just kind of how sometimes uh, when Jesus challenges um, uh, we talked a little bit about economics, right? The people were choosing economics and power over healing. Uh, so kind of where we've been, I've been thinking this week about medical malpractice. All right, medical malpractice. What's medical malpractice? Um, Elise, come on, because I will, if you don't get this right, I will take you straight to court. <laughs> medical malpractice. So, for example, would this be medical malpractice? Repeated brain operations on the wrong side. Correct. At Rhode Island Hospital in 2007, um, they operated on the wrong side of patient's brain three separate times. Uh, according to MSNBC, the last ill-fated operation occurred on November 23rd when a neurologist drilled into the right side of a patient's skull when scans clearly showed the bleeding present on the left. The hospital received a reprimand of $50,000 fine from the Rhode Island Department of Health in August the same year. See, some of these get a little like depressing because this is like serious stuff. But in the same year, a patient died several weeks after a surgical team at the same hospital operated on the wrong side of his head. Is that medical malpractice? Yeah. Here's another one. I got, I got four of them, okay? And like the... I looked and I was like looking at the big cases, the ones that make like the big money, because you've probably seen that, right? And they were really sad. I couldn't. So these are a little bit more lighthearted, I guess, for, you know, just kind of get the sermon warmed up a little bit this morning, get everybody. It's... So a surgeon removes the wrong leg. Um, 95 amputated the wrong leg of then 52-year-old Willie King, host of medical errors, including incorrect notations, led to King's wrongful amputation. Surprisingly, the surgeon who performed the surgery only received a $10,000 fine and the loss of his medical license for six months. Meanwhile, King sued University Community Hospital and the surgeon involved for a combined $1.2 million, the Times reported. I mean, that was 95. Don't we feel like if that was today, that decimal point would be moved over to the right? If not one, maybe two or three times for the wrong leg. And then I don't, I didn't follow up on this particular one, but then I'm wondering, did they have to then go back and remove the right leg? And now he has no legs. Um, okay, uh, I got two more. Um, this one's interesting. I did not know this about this. Surgery leads to suicide. Being wide awake and unable to scream for help during surgery is a nightmare turned reality for thousands of patients every year, according to PubMed.gov. The phenomenon known as anesthetic awareness um, renders a patient completely aware 
and able to feel pain, but unable to move or speak. You know about this, Phil? You're shaking your head like you're a pro on this. I've just heard about it before. Um, so this, this happened, uh, an occurrence of anesthetic awareness. Am I saying that right? Anesthetic, right? Awareness happened in 2006. Re, uh, reportedly contributed to the suicide of a West Virginia pastor. Anesthesiologist supervising 73-year-old Sherman Sizemore's exploratory surgery failed to administer proper drugs uh, to render him unconscious until 16 minutes after the surgeon's first incision. And it says he committed suicide two weeks later. Again, so this kind of, some of them are a little sad because, uh, one more. Uh, this one's not that, that bad. Okay, so we all know Dana Carvey, right? Dana Carvey was uh, Garth in Wayne's World. He was the church lady in the famous Saturday Night Live skit. Where else were we talking about with Dana Carvey? What else did he do? Those are two big ones? Yeah, okay. Uh, nearly died twice when doctors bypassed the wrong artery in his heart. The then 42-year-old, that's my age, comedian had to go undergo emergency surgery to bypass a legitimately clogged artery and repair damage to the first. The surgeon called the incident an honest mistake. Uh, Carvey didn't agree and sued the doctor for $7.5 million, citing the seriousness of the medical mistake and the nearly two-year recovery period. I had no idea about that, about Dana Carvey. So anyway, those are my medical malpractice cases. And the medical malpractice case that we will study this morning happened about 2,000 years ago when there was a healing prophet who rendered himself unclean, healing a woman while a synagogue ruler's daughter dies. You with, with me on this story? You guys know what this story is? A healing prophet renders himself unclean, healing a woman while the synagogue ruler's daughter dies. Should we go to Mark chapter 5? Let's read about it. Starting at 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, now he's gone from the Gentile side of the lake, right? Kind of the Decapolis area, back over to, so to speak, the Jewish side of the lake. A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Sorry, I maybe should have said we're, we'll read this in the round, but um, if someone wants to take the next couple of verses. Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? 
against you, it's judged against you. And yet, you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying out and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all the commotion and why wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went out in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, uh, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave Strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Mark, thank you. Coming right back, jumping right into it. Talitha Kum. Yeah. That's it. But other than that, I mean, even without that, A plus on you. Thanks for reading that. Um, if you were to go to an ER room. This is actually a picture of where Elise works. Just kidding. I don't do that. You know, and you have these two tables and one woman comes in and okay, let me just see if I can say this without getting she has a yeast infection, chronic yeast infection, right? And then another woman, another little child comes in who's perhaps seizing uncontrollably, right? Which one is the doctor going to see first? See, that's a trick question. He's going to see the woman first because that's what Jesus did, right? And we think like this, right? We think like, okay, you have one child here on the brink of death, right? And you have a woman here who's ceremonially unclean. Um, which one are you going to see first, right? And notice how, how Jesus goes to the woman first. A couple things as we get into this passage uh, in Mark here. There is a part of me that thinks we could just spend the morning just kind of reading and rereading this passage, almost in a very Lectio Divina kind of meditative way. Uh, this passage is like one of those passage, uh, it has some, like all of chapter five, right? The healing of the demoniac, and then this passage of Jairus' daughter and the woman with blood. This whole chapter just has like soul to it, right? It just, it's vivid, it's technicolor. You feel these stories, right? You feel the depths of these stories. And I was really thinking this, this, these past couple weeks, I was thinking about this sermon. Man, kind of going into the technical details on this kind of spoils the passage, doesn't it? Like you start like talking about, oh, this means that, and that means this. But there's just, these stories are so raw. There's that raw emotion of the woman. There's the raw emotion of the synagogue ruler who's falling at, his, at Jesus' feet. Um, and so you have just like these incredibly vivid technicolor stories. But 
as we think about this, this narrative, I'll push forward a little bit, uh, just to kind of frame this passage before, I, I want to talk about faith this morning, the, the role of faith in this passage, but just to kind of frame this passage, because um, the, the first question is this, how many daughters in this story? How many daughters are mentioned? Two. Two, right? Jairus comes at the very beginning and says, my little daughter is dying, right? Come place your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And then what happens when Jesus heals a woman? What does he say to her? What does he call her? Daughter. Your faith has healed you. So all of a sudden here, we're already kind of picking up, right? Like go back to that picture of the ER room and we're thinking like, oh, this one's really, this one's really the needy case and this one's really the needy, or this one's not as important. But right away, like you're kind of getting this symmetry of the passage. They're both daughters, right? Now let's ask this question. What is the number that is used in this passage? How long has a woman been suffering? How old is a child? Twelve, right? Again, you think like, oh, the, the child, right? But you see that the, the author, they're framing um, this story in like, well, you have daughters, 12 years, right? And then this one isn't like uh, a comparison, but almost he kind of, I think that Mark kind of compares by showing the, the opposite um, you have both insiders and outsiders represented in this story, right? Um, the Jewish synagogue ruler, right? Now, this is a man of importance, of stature, right? Uh, someone who was a community influencer, right? This person is on the inside, would be esteemed in the community, right? Of course, Jesus would want to rush to his aid, right? And then you have this woman who is um, what we would call an outsider. First off, she's a woman, right? Women weren't highly valued in that society. She has this, this issue of blood. Now, this issue of blood specifically, even in the Old Testament laws, would make her unclean, right? She would not be allowed to be in contact with people. She would not be allowed to go to the temple. She would not be allowed to attend synagogue. All these things would make her unclean. Let's, let's kind of build on that a little bit, right? Because... When we've talked about um, the paralyzed man or the man with the shriveled hand, right? If you have some sort of deformity, if you have some sort of something wrong with you, the idea, the mindset is, well, well, what have you done that you have received that condition, right? So imagine the rumors, imagine... Um, what's being said, what has this woman done that she is kind of consistently bleeding from this area, right? What's going on? What sin has she committed? What sin has her parents committed, right? So you have the framing of the story. And again, the symmetry of daughters are both daughters. Uh, they're both this kind of number 12 is significant here. You have an insider, and you have an outsider. They're both kind of coming to find, coming to Jesus. And they're both begging Jesus at his feet, right? They're both at the feet of Jesus. Um, the kind of key piece on this story, though, is this word faith, right? Is this word faith. And you kind of pick this up as Jesus is speaking to the woman after she's touched him. And he says, you know, who touched my clothes? He notices power has gone out from him. And then she comes and trembling with fear, tells him the whole truth. And then he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, the Greek word here that would be used is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. 
And then in verse 36, remember, so right after he heals her, then the people come from Jairus' house. Why bother the teacher anymore? The da- your daughter's dead, right? And Jesus says to this man, don't be afraid, just believe, right? And again, pistu, which these words are very, this is the root word. This is just a different variation of it. But faith, belief, kind of in, in the same realm right there, um, essentially the same, the same word. So I want to talk a little bit about faith this morning. Uh, I just have three things I want to say about it. And then we'll have to end a little, I think, well, geez, I'm already... I want to end early because I know that the kids can't go outside today. Faith, uh, not mental assent about a deity uh, for salvation, right? A lot of times we think about faith and we consider faith as something that people, some people have, right? Some people have faith and then other people don't have faith, right? And that faith is largely this kind of like somewhere up in their brain, they believe that there's a God out there, maybe Jesus, maybe the cross, resurrection, right? And I would say that faith is part of that, right? But a lot of people would say, or a lot of people subconsciously just kind of consider like, like that's what faith is. Sure, there's some other things attached to it, but that's faith, right? This mental ascent that I've made about a deity, about salvation, about Jesus, God, right? Um, Faith in Jesus, right? Faith specifically in Jesus is more than you are not guilty or you are forgiven, right? A lot of people think that faith in Jesus, right? To have faith in Jesus means my sins, not guilty. I've been forgiven, right? I, I, don't, I forget which commentary I picked this up from. I, I just loved how this person said it, and I've just kind of like, I've been riffing a little bit off of it. But, you know, faith in Jesus is a declaration that you are part of the family, right? You. Right? And I want to look around. I look around at each. I was thinking about this as I was just kind of thinking about the sermon. Every single person in this room, and even the folks that aren't here, you be, like God, Jesus is saying to you, just as he said to that woman, right? You belong here. All of you, right? Not just the Sunday morning you that looks all nice and has your Bible open and, you know, says prayers. Um, the Tuesday afternoon you, the Friday evening when you're grouchy, you. Um, the Saturday afternoon when you're lazy, you. The sinful you, Jesus, right, is saying to you, I think faith, it's not just mental ascent about salvation and God. It's not just, hey, I'm forgiven or, uh, you know, or I'm not guilty. It is a declaration that you are part of the family, right? You belong here, Um Uh, And just kind of saying this, it brings more than healing, right? Faith in Jesus brings more than healing, spiritual or physical. Not to say that that's not important, but I think one of the things that we learn here in this passage is that it is bringing identity to people. Faith is bringing identity to both the synagogue ruler and to, to the woman, right? To what I'll call her the older daughter, right? Think about it like this. That older daughter, right? Her issue of blood um, had kept her outside any sort of communal, religious, or family life, right? Yeah. 
I said what? Oh, sorry. Is it this spelling word? Did I spell it right? Oh, Johnny, you wanted to know how to spell people. I thought you guys were having a commentary on my sermon there for a second. That's why I got all... <laughs> okay. The older daughter, right? This issue of blood had kept her outside. Uh, we watched... I wanted to watch The Chosen. Obviously, The Chosen obviously kind of does a little spin on a lot of these verses. Season three. Do you guys watch this one? Um, she... I, I don't know how true this would be, but she's kind of, you know, kind of created this camp even outside of the village, right? She would not even go into the village. Um, so when Jesus heals her, right? Now think about the doors that are opened for her, right? Think about her being able to come back into synagogue, right? Into religious life, family life, just into a marketplace. You know, not only has the blood, this issue of blood kind of kept her out of all these things, right, and, and removed identity from her. But think about, like, the economic identity that's been removed from her. She doesn't have any money, right? She's not allowed to really go places to make money. She's spent all she's had. So when Jesus, again, heals her, when, Jesus, when, when he says your faith has healed you, the identity that is re-given to her, like a brand new, Jesus doesn't say, hey, well, your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven, so you're good. She is given a brand new identity. You know, the, the younger daughter, and, and kind of with this, I would say, we're talking specifically probably about Jairus here, right? Jairus is kind of the, the one here. Uh, the death of a child, I mean, I thought about this a couple times. I can't even think to make myself think about that. Um, I, Chris, I know a mutual friend of, uh, you worked with the Edens, right? Uh, and they they have like they some new neighbors of ours um, who a couple years ago uh, lost a child just uh, died in the sleep in, the, in her sleep uh, I don't know I've kind of like wanted to ask her about this for my sermon I was like yeah that's probably not the best thing but um, you take a child away from you right whatever child it is gone and then to have that child restored to you. Again, what faith, I believe, does, you know, if we were to say this, it's, it's bringing more than just healing. It is bringing all new identity, right? All new identity for, for the daughter, for the father. I mean, you could even say for the younger daughter, she's dead, right? She's alive now. She does have identity. So um, just some, some kind of primers there on what faith is and is not, at least as we're looking through this story. Uh, the second thing I want to say about faith, too, I want to talk about allegiance. So uh, just giving credit a little bit to where some of this material comes from. Uh, when I was a young pastor, I know a couple of folks know a guy named Rob Bell, who was, I thought he was the, I thought he was one of Jesus' original disciples. He was so, and then he would like kind of take some stuff from a guy named Ray Vanderlaan. We watched, um, so anyway, these two guys have had a big influence on on kind of, some of preaching and teaching and, and thinking. So they've done a lot of this work. So I don't want to say that this is like copying and pasting, but if I am going to copy and paste and kind of use some of their ideas, I always want to be a person that gives credit where credit's still. And those guys deserve credit for, for this. So these guys will talk about this. Um, 
And I'm going to kind of take some of their, their thoughts and, and kind of talk about it in a little bit different way. But this is a Jewish prayer shawl, okay? And uh, even Orthodox Jews today, even most Jewish people will still have something like this, okay? Now, why do they have this? This dates all the way back to the book of Numbers, right? As Jesus is instructing the Israelites and he's giving them the law. And he says, throughout the generations to come, you're going to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel, right? So you can kind of see here these little blue cords, right? Um, you will have these tassels to look at. And so you will remember the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and you will be, and will be consecrated to your God, right? So God's giving the instruction. Um, he's giving them that on the corners of your garments, you're going to have these little tassels, these little blue tassels. Now, speaking of the chosen, I don't know if you picked up on this. I have. I thought this was a very nice um, piece of, of the chosen. Ooh, that's tough to see. By the way, don't, they're, just like the, they're just like so cool. Like, the, the, like, look at them. Jesus has got that nice purple. Just, it's hard to see. Sorry, this, this picture's. If you can, though, see, or if you're watching it, you can kind of see, and, and I, I thought that this was a great little addition, they all have these blue tassels on the corners of their garments, right? This is something that, you know, even today, Orthodox Jews will do, and especially in, in those days, they would have these little, um, these little tassels on the corners of their garments. So God instructs them to do that. The Jews do this. They have these, um, these tassels, these blue corded tassels. And then at the very end of the Old Testament, right, you have this prophecy here at the bottom um, by the prophet Malachi. And Malachi says, as he's thinking about this coming Messiah, the one who's going to deliver and save and rescue Israel and bring her out of bondage, he says, the son of, and again, play on the word son, son of righteousness will rise with healings in his wings. Now, the word wings, right, is the same word as this word corners, right? So what happens is these, these words all connected, corners, tassels, wings, um, as, as the Jews would understand this and as they kind of, took this, this prophecy, they translated it and they thought, and they began to believe that when the Messiah comes, right? When the Messiah comes, there will be healing in his, in his tassels, right? When the woman falls at Jesus's feet and touches his tassels, right? His, right? We just think, sometimes when we think about this, this passage, we think like, this is kind of televangelist Jesus, where you touch the TV screen, you send the money, and you're healed, right? This, what she's doing here is she's going back to a prophecy of Malachi, that the Messiah is coming, not only coming, but is here, right? She doesn't just fall at his feet and just like randomly like wisp at his cloak. She falls at his feet and is touching these, these tassels, these corners, 
where when the Messiah comes, when the Son of Righteousness comes, there will be healing in his wings. It's why Jesus stops and says, because we don't see this with Jesus, right? Jesus is like, hold on, let me, you know, power has gone out for me. But there's something about this healing, right? Where this woman steps forward in faith and touches these tassels. And to, to think about it like this, that the Messiah is here, right? This is what she's saying with her actions, that the Messiah is here and he demands my full allegiance, right? That's what she's saying. It's a beautiful moment. It's, you know, sometimes it's kind of, some of the biblical stories are a little bit hidden with some of the Old Testament stuff, but what she's really doing is she is declaring the Messiah, which we're going to see in the next passage too, um, where Jesus goes to his hometown um, and, you know, he's kind of going to go see, teach in the synagogue. He's going to, again, reference this Messiahship. Jesus doesn't really, for the most part, just come out and stand on the hilltop with his arms in the air shouting, I am the Messiah, right? What he does is he allows all these subtle breadcrumbs, these hints, these images for people to kind of begin to pick up and have faith in who he is and what he's doing and allow our allegiance to be given completely to him. Um, the last one here is, I call this one willpowering. I know that's a made-up word. Willpowering faith, also known as trying really ha- hard to have more faith for healing or blessing, right? Let me explain this one for a little bit. Uh, well, while they were still, still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, a synagogue ruler. Your child is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any longer? What does Jesus say to him? Don't be afraid. Just believe. Just have faith, right? Now, again, using that initial image of faith, right? Like faith is this mental ascent. You might think there, like, oh man, that synagogue ruler probably closed his eyes. He furrowed his brow. More faith! I'm going to believe harder. Like, I'm going to believe, right? And we think that maybe that's what he did. But again, that kind, of, that kind of isn't the faith that we're talking about here. That's not what Jesus is asking him to do. Um, sometimes when we think about faith, we think that we can do that, right? We're just going to, more faith, we're going to believe harder. If I squint my eyes, it's going to come. I just really need to believe to have more faith. And sometimes people will tell you, maybe you've heard this before, maybe you've heard this in Christian circles, well, the reason you didn't get healed, the reason your prayer wasn't answered, the reason this or that didn't happen is because you didn't have enough faith, right? Maybe you've heard that before. Um, I think that faith is one of the aspects of the Christian life that you cannot directly access, okay? You cannot willpower your way towards greater uh, more deeper, a more, a more vibrant faith, right? Here's what I mean by that. Um, I, I believe that faith is one of the things in our spiritual life that we gain through indirect access or what we would call kind of off-the-spot practices. Uh, as an example, and I was going to use an, a, a cycling example because I knew that Chris was going on vacation. He was going to be gone for three weeks. He's going to be like, oh, man, Eric, cycling examples. I'm going to miss them. I thought we'd go somewhere completely new this morning, someplace our church has never been for an example of Eric. Are you guys ready for this one? Anybody want to take a guess? It's a sport. It's a sport. Rugby. Pickleball. Woo! 
look at you coming on up with that pickleball reference. You may take the rest of the morning off. You're done for that. <laughs> a pickleball reference. Who doesn't like it? And you know what's really interesting about pickleball? You probably know this. That the 2023 World Pickleball Championship, 20,000 US dollars, is happening August. Oh, no, that's registration. September 19th to the 24th. Where? Bali, Indonesia. Come on. Somebody's out there thinking, like, I could definitely be down for a pickleball championship in Bali, Indonesia. I'm going to use you as an example since you guessed it. Okay, Liz, you're going, to, you're going right? This is it. Like, you're like, I'm going to be the pickleball champion. I'm going to be, get that $20,000. Um, what would you do if you wanted to become that pickleball champion? Okay. What else? So here's the thing. You can practice pickleball, right? That's helpful. If you wanted to become the best pickleball player in the world, see, this is relevant to everybody because I know that everybody out there has at least tried it. Dietra, pickleball, you've tried it. Yeah, and? Were you one of the $400 million of injuries that pickleball has created in our country or no? You could, you could practice pickleball, right? But to be the best, think about what, what we're going to, what I'll call indirect off-the-spot practices, right? Think about nutrition, right? Think about agility drills, right? Think about all the start, stop, all those sorts of things. Think about rest and recovery. Think about joint health, right? Think about hand-eye coordination, right? If you wanted to be this world pickleball champion, you can practice, and that's helpful. You're going to need to do that. But there is a lot of what we would call kind of indirect, off-the-spot um, practices, things that you would need to do to become that pickleball champion on the spot, right? Mark, I see that hand. I did not know this. From she where? Just beat her mother from the United States. Oh, wow. Really? Just beat out her mother was uh, one, and she took them off the place. This is, this is the extent of my pickleball knowledge. <laughs> one picture from Google Images <laughs> and, a, and a 2023 that this is happening. We are learning pickleball as much as we are learning about Mark chapter 5 this morning, so this is exciting for us as a church, <laughs> right? My point is this. This is a long, drawn-out point to say. Faith, faith is, like, if you wanted to, like, with faith, it's not just something that you're just going to do. I think that faith is something that happens, what I would say, indirectly, right? You have to do these indirect, kind of off-the-spot practices, and that's what builds your faith. So a couple examples might be, like, praying for daily bread. And, you know, I put this up here, safety, driving, health for kids, food, clothing, safety of home. You know, you have to just kind of stack the small faithfulness of God moment upon moment, day upon day, week upon week, month upon, you know what I mean? So that's why, you know, when we pray for things like vacation, for traveling mercies with vacation, right? These are, these are kind of like things that just build and deepen our faith. God, thank you for protecting me on that trip. Thank you for keeping me safe here. Thank you for my, what's going on with my child. Um, thank you for the, the, the daily the daily bread that I get, right? So you kind of, again, you're not squinting your eyes, like, I'm going to have more faith, I'm going to have more belief. It's, it's real kind of simple daily bread. I remember I gave an example a couple years ago. 
and this is the silliest thing, but it was something, I needed new, new bike tires for my bike. And we were at a point at that point in our, in our marriage where money was really tight and I couldn't, I don't know if I couldn't afford it or, or what the situation was like. I just need some new bike tires. And somebody said, hey, I, I have these extra bike tires. Do you want them? You know what I mean? And it was, but it was this moment, sorry, I left one part out. Like I needed new bike tires and I literally like prayed for new bike tires. I'm like, come on, Eric, that's silly. Like you're praying for bike tires. Okay, just a little bit of something. And the Lord brought bike tires till this day. I still remember that as, again, just a little bit of daily bread in, in a real practical way for me. Uh, speaking of prayer, just sitting here with your palms up, right? Sitting here, maybe take two, three, five minutes, palms up, you just trust God and you receive his care and his love for all aspects of your life to create fruit in your life. Just like that, Johnny, you're doing great. Right? And you just, you just pray with your palms up. You just sit, palms up. I'm God, I'm going to trust you. Right? I'm going to receive your care, your competence, all aspects of my life. God, that you will build fruit in my life. Right? Not that just, I'm just going to have nice stuff and life's going to be easy. That you will build fruit in my life. Love and joy and peace and goodness. Um, two more. I have, uh, you know, memorization imagery um, one who delights in the words of the Lord is like a tree who is planted by a stream of water right and you memorize that you think about that image you just allow that to just kind of soak into your brain right again this is how faith grows is built it's it's these indirect these kind of off-the-spot practices silence um, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, having a moment to quiet ourselves, right? To sit silently before the Lord. God, would you speak to me, right? It's one thing to say in the kind of quiet and peacefulness, if you have these moments, I know a lot of kids, people, families, young kids, jobs, careers, I understand that. If you create these moments, God, I'm here to hear from you speak to me, build my faith, right? It's one thing to kind of sit there quietly, praying, asking God to do that. Um, allow, him, allow him to speak to you. I didn't put this one up there, but, you know, sometimes you just have to read the Bible and then just go do what it says, right? And just step out. And it might seem counterintuitive and it might seem weird and it might seem like, what am I doing here? For, a great example would be to bless an enemy. What would that look like for you? an enemy, someone whom, who you just don't like at the moment. What would it look like for you just to take a leap of faith and just go bless that person? So with faith, I believe, again, like these would just be a couple examples, right? Off-the-spot practices. This is nutrition. This is rest. This is agility. This is, um, this is like, uh, you know, hand-eye coordination. This is like the off-the-spot practices that you would do. That's what would, would build your faith. Is that a good place to stop for this morning? You can tell it's a good place to stop because we have received our second leak right here. And I don't know if the other one started over there quite yet, but this is our second leak that's happened right here. So um, is any, anything leaking over there by you, Dietra? It usually happens like, usually happens like right in this area here. So, oh yeah, there, no, is that the one right there? Right there? Yeah? Okay. Rob, can you pass your umbrella over to Dietra? <laughs> 
I was I was literally looking at the weather, thinking like, okay, I got to be done by this time because the heavy rain's gonna come, <laughs> and we got to be out of here. Let's do a couple questions, uh, and then we'll we'll wrap it on up. Uh, how do you feel this passage? Again, this is a passage that needs to be felt. It's technicolor. It's vivid. We can explain it, but there's something just about the emotion of the passage. Uh, where do you see faith shaping your identity rather than, again, just kind of that idea of mental ascent? Share something that you have been... I missed that part. We skipped that question. I, I missed that part of my sermon. Um, what, does that messi- what does that word Messiah mean to you? Right? She grabs the hem, that corner of his garment. She's saying he is the Messiah. What does that word mean to you when you think about the Messiah? Of the willpowering examples... Right? Uh, which one stood out to you? Maybe which one would you like to practice or, or try out this week? So, uh, oops. Good? Take a couple minutes.